Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, hello and welcome. Great to see folks in the audience here in person. And of course, those of you who've joined online, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. We just released the 2022 Index of Economic Freedom. This is our 28th edition since we published the first index in 1995. This annual report on economic freedom is the Heritage Foundation's flagship publication. It's the go-to guide for policymakers around the world who want to increase policies that advance economic growth, employment, productivity, and prosperity. I'd like to thank my heritage colleagues, Anthony Kim, Terry Miller, Patrick Tyrell, and Jim Roberts for their work on the annual index. The index rankings provide a yardstick for measuring the success or failure of government policies. The results for 177 countries can be found at heritage.org index. Our annual index of economic freedom is more than just numbers and rankings, however. It offers a timely reminder on the importance of free market policies that preserve in advance economic freedom. Regrettably, the news for the United States is not good. The U.S. this year grades out as only the 25th freest country in the world. It's our lowest ranking ever. The U.S. is behind countries like Sweden and Switzerland, Germany and Taiwan, South Korea and the Netherlands. The causes of declining freedom in America are no mystery. In recent years, federal spending has exploded, and the misguided response to COVID-19 only exacerbated the problem. Congress approved more than $6 trillion in additional spending since the start of the pandemic alone, much to politically favored constituencies with little regard to the actual impact of COVID. The government is borrowing about $3 trillion a year to finance that out-of-control spending. COVID lockdowns, including business closures, capacity limits, and travel restrictions, hammered the American people. And I will just also say they continue to present tense, and it's time for them to be over. The results, unfortunately, are predictable. Millions of Americans lost their jobs. Millions more dropped out of the workforce as excessive government and unemployment payments reduced the incentive to work. The cost of living is skyrocketing with rampant inflation, the inevitable result of the government pushing freshly printed dollars into circulation. Our burgeoning administrative state, long a problem even before COVID, intrudes even more today with regulation and oversight. As Americans and particularly the poorest among us suffer, the government incredibly exacerbates the problem with policies designed to increase energy costs, curtail trade, and force businesses increasingly into a one-size-fits-all straitjacket that politicizes hiring and firing and finance and investment. But other than that, everything is great. The result is less economic freedom, less innovation, less efficiency, and fewer opportunities for the least among us to prosper. Joining me today to discuss all of these critical issues is Senator Mike Lee, a true friend of mine, who represents Utah and advocates principled conservative policy ideas every single day in the nation's capital. Senator, I'm delighted to welcome you back to Heritage. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Senator Mike Lee. Thanks so much, Kevin, and thanks to all of you. It is um, an exceedingly rare event for me to receive applause in this particular town, so um, uh, this may be the only place that ever happens uh, here, and, and I'm fine with that. Um, it's always a pleasure to speak at the Heritage Foundation. This is an exciting place where exciting things happen. Ideas that need to be researched uh, come to light here, and they're developed uh, and they make the world a better place. Your, um, your thought leadership here really does shine as a beacon uh, for the United States and um, by logical extension for the rest of the world. As the fence around the Capitol and the huge police presence uh, surrounding that same building indicate, uh, today is the day when President Joe Biden will give his first State of the Union address to Congress. He's no doubt going to say a couple things. I'm going to make some predictions right now about what you're going to hear. Just remember that you heard it from me first. Thing number one, he's going to say that the state of our union is strong. Now, I'm going out on a limb there, but I'm pretty sure he's going to say that. And I'm pretty sure he's also going to cobble together an argument that the state of the union is stronger now than it was the day he took office just a little over a year ago. Now, polling and common sense tell us that the opposite is true, uh, uh, but I do think he probably is going to say that. This past year of, of President Biden's leadership, or, or lack thereof, is, it brought weakness and failure abroad. It's brought inflation and economic turmoil here at home, and a near total acquiescence to the radical social agenda of critical race theory and woke, gen woke gender factions. Now, look, I, I've, uh, before I got started in my current job, I practiced as a lawyer. And I've argued some tough cases in my time. I don't think I've ever argued a case as difficult as one would have to make if one were trying to defend the accomplishments of the Biden administration over the last year. And as his, um, his nonsensical insistence that Americans are better off today than they were the day he took office. The great prophet uh, of the Old Testament, Isaiah, uh, said, quote, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I wonder what Isaiah, the father of Maher Shalal Hashbaz, would say uh, today about those who call poverty prosperity. Because I, th I think that's what's going on here. I think that's what one would have to say. That would have to be one's insistence if one were going to argue that Americans really are better off today than the day President Biden took office. So as you can imagine, I'm very interested to hear what President Biden might say in support of this argument tonight. 
I'm interested to see his attempt to justify his failed policies. But more than that, I'm interested to see how the American people will react. One delightful role that I have in the United States Senate is to serve as the lead Republican from the Senate on the Joint Economic Committee. In the last Congress, um, I got to be chairman. When I, when I first obtained that role, I charged my staff with starting something new, uh, that the likes of which hadn't really been seen before in Congress. Uh, I, I, I asked the Joint Economic Committee staff to focus on what, it make, what makes American communities and neighborhoods and families and institutions so strong. In research parlance, uh, we, we call this social capital. Now, economic research shows that the connections people have with those around them are not only just important, but they're incredibly valuable. And be it through mask and vaccine mandates, endless lockdowns, unrestrained illegal immigration, labeling concerned parents and citizens as terrorists, and painting significant subsets of our country's population as dangerous political outcasts. Democrats have done more to erode our nation's social capital than many of us thought would ever be possible. In the sense our, our, our union represents connection and community, we have very good reason to be concerned. Our union also represents the economic connections that tie us together. Unfortunately, our nation's economic recovery from COVID has been weaker and more prolonged than it should have been. The explosive growth that we saw during the Trump administration was followed by overspending, by mismanagement, and by this unmistakable uh, excessive heavy-handedness that we've seen from the current administration. While unemployment is low, millions of Americans still haven't returned to the workforce. Inflation is ravaging wage growth and making life more expensive, and countless businesses that closed due to excessive governmental regulation and mandates aren't coming back. All these things are making life more difficult for the American people, including and especially the poor and middle class, who find that everything is more expensive. Everything is more costly, from gas to groceries, from housing to health care. All the while, our nation's debt has never been higher, and Democrats respond to every problem with more spending, more regulation, and more restriction on American freedom. You can almost see them in the background calling for more cowbell, and their only response to problems that we face is more cowbell still. They can't get enough of the cowbell. I guess when all you have in your intellectual toolbox is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Now, thankfully, mercifully, organizations like Heritage exist. Now, there is only one Heritage, so I, maybe I shouldn't use that in the plural. But it's one of the many reasons why we're so grateful that heritage does, in fact, exist. You here, sitting on this, this great watchtower of freedom, and uh, you who are in that watchtower happen to be the ones sounding the alarm. And you 
unlike the President of the United States, know what prosperity is, and you know how it was achieved, and you know how it can be achieved yet again. You see, prosperity isn't something that is merely legislated. And when you try to shortcut the process of creating prosperity, you short circuit the entire thing. And it doesn't work very often. It backfires. Because prosperity involves human flourishing. It can't really be achieved without human flourishing. Its necessary components include not only goods and services, but connection and freedom. That's why I love this year's Index of Economic Freedom. Your index considers the immense value uh, of connection and trust through rule of law scores. You consider the toll that government size and debt cost an economy. You consider the disguised taxes in government regulations. And you weigh the value of freedom to move assets and investments without excessive government interference, oversight, and infringement. Your index takes a fuller, more accurate view of economic prosperity than numbers like GDP growth or unemployment can give alone. Because your, your index is able to capture all of these elements and to capture more than any other system that I'm aware of the true cost of government. Your tax code, if properly designed and properly functioning, should perform that role. It doesn't, in part because of the way that we've disguised the cost of government. Your index takes this great, accurate view, one that we can't achieve without it. It also confirms a really troubling trend that Americans feel and that President Joe Biden will predictably deny. The United States is less economically free today than it was last year. We're being surpassed by countries that don't have similar natural advantages or philosophical uh, and constitutional backing like we do. Countries that didn't necessarily spring out of uh, the Scottish Enlightenment and uh, uh, periods in history when we came to understand the value of freedom. So we're being surpassed by countries that you wouldn't expect. You've got places like the Czech Republic and Cyprus that can now count themselves as more economically free and more open for business and investment than the world's premier economy. We have to work to change that fact. That's not something that we can simply accept. And you here at the Heritage Foundation take that very, very seriously. You're providing intellectual ammunition and policy plans to lawmakers that they can use to advocate for freedom and for prosperity. You're doing hard work winning hearts and minds across the country to cause the to cause the very cause of freedom and of reform to move forward. You were the ones leading the charge. So I'm honored to stand with you on this issue and, and with this cause. Unlike President Biden, 
we know what prosperity is. We know what it looks like, what it feels like, what's, what its indicators are, and we know that prosperity is not, can never be achieved through indoctrination, mandate, and regulation. Prosperity isn't something that government can dictate down to the people. Prosperity comes from free people interacting, connecting, and working together. Prosperity comes when we recognize the purpose God gave us as people and the reason God established government. The Declaration of Independence says that governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, so as to secure the in inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's time that Americans assess how far our republic has drifted from these founding principles. And we always have to be clear here that we're talking about our republic in the sense of the government, not the people themselves. I'd like to quote uh, a, a mentor uh, of mine named Neil, Neil Maxwell. He used to say that if India is the world's most religious nation, and if Sweden is the world's least religious nation, America can be analogized to a nation of Indians governed by Swedes. Is our government securing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the best possible ways? Is it doing so in a manner that's respectful to the inherent worth and eternal significance of the immortal human soul? No. Thanks to the success of people here and the failures of people at the White House, the answer is painfully clear. Change is needed desperately, immediately. Your economic freedom index and your work here every day are showing us a brighter future and a better alternative. Now, let's just pray that President Biden and his staff catch on and start studying once and for all the Heritage Foundation's wonderful publications. Thank you. Well, thanks, Senator Mike Lee. Great comments. I have, as you probably will not be surprised, questions about the concept of social capital, but we'll save that for a little bit later and uh, talk a little bit why I'm so interested in that, but really want to start with kind of the landscape in the Senate. We have a lot of problems in terms of politics and policy in the United States. I'm going to posit, without getting you to say anything untoward about your colleagues, which you wouldn't do anyway, that one of the problems is there aren't enough of your colleagues in the Senate who share your understanding of economic freedom. So A, how right am I? And B, how do we fix it if I am? You are right to the degree of 12. Um, that's the answer I used to give my kids when they would ask me a question that I didn't know quite how to quantify. If they were wanting something that sounded like a quantifiable answer, I'd say yes to the degree of 12. I'm um, going to remember that. Yeah. I'm going to use it tonight. No, it, there, it, there are all sorts of applications for it, including the fact that if you're on a long road trip with your kids, say you're going to Disney World or something, they keep asking you how long till we get there, you, you say 12. And they say you know, 12 minutes, you say no, 12 chronological units. 
They say, what do you mean by that? And I would say, uh, you take the total number of minutes that it will take us to drive from here to, uh, to Disney World or wherever we're going, and then you divide those minutes by 12. That is the chronological unit of which I'm speaking. By that point, they'd get bored and they'd, they'd stop asking. If I didn't know you better, I'd be thinking you were evading my question. Never, never, not at all. In fact, uh, it's, it's important to remember that we, we really don't have nearly enough champions of economic freedom in the United States Senate. And it's essential that we change that. There are reasons for that. And, and I don't think any of my colleagues necessarily uh, woke up one day and said, yeah, yeah, forget economic freedom. It's not important. Any one of them, I think, if asked that question, would likely attach some degree of importance to it. It's not a question of whether they acknowledge that it's important. I, I think uh, certainly every Republican and, and most Democrats in the Senate would say, yeah, that's an important thing. Um, but it's a question of how they prioritize it. And frequently, I think they attach greater priority to other things. It's much easier in this town to get favorable news headlines and pats on the back from the media uh, dutifully cheering you on if you're voting for and sponsoring and passing legislation expanding uh, what the government spends. And, and, and that's tragic. So, so again, it, it's not that people don't understand that economic freedom is important. It's that they attach higher value to other things, and that's what worries me. So is one way to fix that for us as policymakers, whether in elected capacity or in the case of those of us at Heritage, unelected but, but hopefully with influence on policy, communicating better to constituents that there are ties between what we're talking about as economic freedom with things like health care and, for that matter, inflation. In other words, do we have a golden opportunity in 2022 to drive home this point and perhaps give you more allies in the Senate? I think we have never had a better opportunity than right now uh, in our lifetimes. That never opportunity has been here more, it's never been here more prominently than it is right now. Because we've seen, it's as though we've, we've magnified uh, all the perils of the progressive impulse. They, they, they have been magnified for us to a degree that I don't think I've ever seen in my lifetime in this country. And people see this is what happens when progressives get what they want. You further enrich be extremely wealthy, and you impoverish the poor and middle class, hindering their opportunity for up upward ec economic mobility. So the more we can message that and remind people of that, that, that this is, uh, this is the, the, the foreseeable, predictable result of progressive policies. You hinder upward economic mobility and social connection. So ex explain then for me, a, the connection, and I know there's one, and, and it's a connection between what we're talking about regarding the lack of economic freedom and something that you've been, I will say, very articulate about over the years, and that is the erosion of checks and balances between the branches. What's the connection there? Our system of government was set up so as to make it difficult for the federal government to act. It, they understood that there is this, um, this 
relationship. It's as though there's a, a, an immutable law of the universe. Whenever government acts, it does so at the expense of individual li liberty, economic liberty and otherwise. It doesn't mean government's bad. It just means you can't expand it without uh, a, a corresponding consequence for freedom. And um, so they set up these twin structural protections within the Constitution. One operates on a vertical axis. Uh, the, the, that axis, uh, uh, that, that vertical structural protection we call federalism. And it says that we're going to have most of our power in government operating at a state and local level. Um, then we've got the horizontal protection. It says within the federal government, which you know we've already established, has powers that, are, that Madison described as few and defined, whereas those reserved to the states are numerous and indefinite. So you think of the, the, the distribution of power the way it's supposed to operate, it's sort of like a, a pyramid structure. It's, it's stable that way. It doesn't easily tip over. Within the federal government, which is small, narrow, you're going to have three branches, one that makes the laws, one that executes and implements and enforces them, and another one that interprets them. So those structural protections were there in part to make sure that this government didn't get too big, too powerful, and therefore oppressive uh, uh, and having a tendency to diminish freedom. When we distort either one of the twin structural protections, either the vertical or the horizontal, the way it's tended to work over the last 80 years, see, for the first 150 years or so of our republic's existence, for the most part, the three branches of government kept each other in balance, and there was a healthy respect and a willingness to identify outer bound limits on federal authority. Over the last 85 years or so, we have been dangerously moving power away from the American people in two steps, transgressing both of these things. We've moved power in two steps from the people, first from the people to Washington, and then in a second step from the people's elected lawmakers to unaccountable, uh, nameless, faceless, unelected bureaucrats. And so, uh, sorry, that's a very long answer to your question. But when we distort those structural protections, we diminish freedom. And the founders understood that the risk of this was much greater at the national level than it would be at the state or local level. I read an article just the other day talking about the fact that it's um, from the time you, I don't know whether it's an ignition switch with a key in an aircraft carrier, but from the time you, you turn on the ignition and hope that the starter works that day on the aircraft carrier until the moment where you can actually start steering it. It's, um, it's many, many hours. It takes that much time to just heat up the water in the, the boilers to get everything churning. It's a little bit like how the federal government operates. They didn't foresee aircraft carriers, but they understood something similar to what we understand today. Steering the federal government is like steering an aircraft carrier. The states and local governments are a little more like a jet ski. And so to that extent, you diminish freedom more, and the d diminution of freedom becomes more permanent when it occurs at the national level. You know, Senator, I could have a lot of fun with those metaphors. So we, we might come back to both the jet skis and the aircraft carrier comment. But before doing that, obviously, the, one of the consequences of the problem you laid out very articulately is that the United States has dropped in our index from 20th to 25th. Loaded question, of course, but you know genuinely I and all of us at Heritage are looking for real solutions. 
how do we fix it? How, how do we get that aircraft carrier now that its, its engine is running, but it's, it's barreling toward the wrong direction to at least begin to change course? First, I think there has to be a, a bold acknowledgement uh, on the part of, of the American people that there is a direct relationship between the economic turmoil that they're facing, the fact that everything, everything people buy is now more expensive than it was a year ago. In Utah, um, consumer prices are up uh, a little more even than they are nationally. It's a nine, nine and a half percent range from just a year ago. It is no coincidence that this is happening at exactly the same time when the federal government's been spending trillions of dollars a year more than it brings in. This is what happens. The very definition of inflation, when you just increase the money supply without anything approaching a corresponding change in productivity, in, in GDP, it's, it's physically impossible to increase it that much. So everything's more expensive. When people understand that, that's the gateway into helping them understand that government literally is the problem when it comes to economic freedom. Government literally is the problem when it comes to upward economic mobility. Uh, uh, we, we have been asked to put and, and have tragically put an almost religious amount of faith in government in recent years. And as my wife likes to say, if you want prosperity, you have to trust people and be skeptical of government. Government wants you to do the opposite. Trust government and be skeptical of people. We know that's wrong. And to, and to that point, I can convey this to Mrs. Lee, the government officials are telling us that inflation is transitory. Please respond. Yeah, that's a cute one. <laughs> that's a cute one. Uh, tell that to anyone who's lived through inflation ever. Right. Tell that to people a year from now uh, as, as they see uh, that it's going to prove to be anything but transitory. They want it to be transitory in part because they want to confuse what the problem is. You're also going to hear in the coming days something I'm already hearing from a number of my Democratic colleagues, which is that, you know, energy prices, totally Biden's fault. Nobody else, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not Biden's fault. Uh, it was a Freudian slip. Totally Putin's fault, not Biden's fault. And uh, turns out it is actually Biden's fault. They, 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 they want to identify anything that doesn't work in their favor as transitory, as temporary. This, by the way, is part of their overall shtick. Uh, uh, another of Sharon's favorite phrases, Sharon's my wife, uh, all socialism begins as emergency socialism. They, they're always responding to an immediate temporary condition, and the answer is always uh, more cowbell, meaning more, more government spending and more government regulation. So last question before we get to the really smart questions, which will come from the audience. So if you're in the audience, you have a question, be, be queuing that up. And it's a question about messaging, Senator, and that is persuading more Americans to recognize the virtues of economic freedom. They, they know this. But it seems as if there's a disconnect between what we're doing, you're doing the Senate, we're doing the heritage, and the recognition by Americans, especially those who vote, on the policies they need to be advocating for. The, the, the additional part of that question I want to work in is this. 
is there a way to use our understanding of social capital in, in maybe a less academic way to help people draw the connection, not because they're dumb, but because they're actually very smart. They're going about their businesses, their lives, their families, to draw the connection between inflation and government overreach with what they're feeling in their communities, which is that government is actually undermining social capital. Let me take my best shot at this one. I've, I've thought a lot about this recently. Throughout history, let's say th throughout our history as a country, including our history going back to the, to the time when we were part of uh, that London-based operation that, you know, uh, that, that we don't speak of uh, uh, much except around 4th of July when we remind ourselves how awesome it was that we've got our own flag now and, and have for the last nearly 250 years. <clears throat> Historically, in order to be economically prosperous, you needed access to the king. You needed permission from the king to do business in a certain way at a certain time. If you had that access to the king, you're going to be rich. If you didn't, you were going to be poor. It was pretty much always the case. This was bad for everyone, except perhaps those who had access to the king and were therefore rich. But that group of people was always going to be small, and it kept, kept down the, the total, the, the overall progress and the economic growth of the entire country. But this was fine. This was a reasonable uh, accommodation for those who are wealthy and well-connected. And the, those were always the same people. We changed that in this country. And we realized in this country, you don't and shouldn't need access to the king, to the government. We don't have a king anymore, but wealth doesn't ultimately and should never be made dependent on your access to the government. What you need is access to other people. Government's there to make sure that you've got access to other people without undue interference from government or otherwise. As long as it does that job, every person has the ability to prosper and to thrive. That's what has made America so remarkable despite our faults, our flaws, and the fact that we sometimes forget the secret sauce that led to our success, this is the most successful, prosperous civilization that human history has ever recorded, specifically for this reason. Because we understand well, all we need is access to each other. We don't need access to government. When we rediscover that, we'll be in much better shape. And we'll see that our best days will remain yet ahead of us. We haven't passed them by. Glad to hear you conclude with that optimistic note. It, it really does bring home the point about thinking about access to one another and your comment about emergency socialism or Sharon's comments about emergency socialism, that we haven't had access to one another. And about, at least in, in my case, I know in yours, because we were, we were talking about it recently, about two or three weeks into the pandemic, we were realizing, oh, this isn't just about a disease. It's, it's also about power, and we're living through that now. State of the Union ought to be interesting that point tonight. 
But I'll step off my soapbox, Senator, and turn it over to our audience here. If you have a question, just raise your hand. My colleague will come around with a microphone, and we'll take a few questions. Yes, sir. First question coming up. Morning, Senator. Thanks for being with us. I'm Jim Roberts. I'm one of the editors of the Economic Freedom Index, and uh, this is my 15th and final edition since I'm retiring from Heritage on Friday. Uh, I just wondered how you would respond to critics, especially on the conservative side, who argue that uh, an, an inordinate focus on free markets has contributed to the rise of woke corporations, of monopolies and oligopolies forming, not just in big tech, but across the economy. And that in the case of big tech, these uh, monopolies are, being, are practically an adjunct now of the federal government. And uh, we know that the Biden administration has been working with them really to uh, suppress dissent, especially canceling conservatives. So is, is there an inordinate effect or impact of too much free market that is actually harming economic freedom for Americans? Thank you. Thank you. First of all, uh, thanks for uh, the, all of your work and congratulations on your upcoming retirement. You look way too young to be retiring to me, but- uh, I keep telling him that, Senator, but he won't listen. I'll have to find out what your skincare regimen looks like and how you stay so young. But uh, all right, I don't believe that there is such thing as, as too much economic freedom because unlike many things that we think of as, as good, there are, there are a lot of good things that you can have too much of. I don't tend to think of economic freedom as one of them. Those who make this argument in some cases, I think, are incorrectly channeling angst they feel uh, toward economic freedom when they're really trying to express something else. In some cases, they might be referring to excessive concentration of market power resulting in anti-competitive behavior resulting in the inability of the free market to operate as such. We've got laws that cover that. Those laws uh, while very imperfectly enforced, in part because we have a, a two-headed monster enforcing them, meaning we, we have inexplicably um, divided into two separate regulatory bodies, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, the authority to enforce those things. Uh, it creates this weird situation in which you never have complete certainty and, um, uh, you know, just imagine, imagine what the a disaster the American form of government would be if we had two presidents of the United States simultaneously serving, if, if there were two popes overseeing the Catholic Church simultaneously. We've tried that. Uh, it didn't work. Yeah, it, it, it did, didn't, didn't, get, didn't go well. Yeah, decided not to do it again. Although it, some of us might advocate for a second one right now. Right, right. <laughs> None of those things would work. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's part of the problem there is um, I think our failure appropriately to enforce our antitrust laws sometimes is perceived by others as failures of the free market, when really it's just a failure of government to do its basic job in ensuring that free markets exist. Secondly, those who ra raise this, this criticism uh, very often ignore the fact that some of the behaviors that they see very often are themselves the product of excessive government involvement. Sometimes it's excessive government contracting and government spending 
with particular companies that gives them such power that they start to take on the trappings and the, uh, the, the excessive um, air of superiority that we often associate with governments. That itself is often a result of government overaction. Finally, I would say that many who raise this argument do so in reckless disregard for the fact that many of these same companies are the ones most eagerly, avidly, aggressively making the argument for more aggressive government regulation in their fields. Now, let's think this through for a minute, because I've had this argument with a number of the CEOs of the very companies that you're thinking of. Very often, they come to me as a member of the United States Senate and suggest, oh, we need more regulation of this area or that area. There's a reason they want this. And it has everything to do with maintaining their own hegemony, their own dominance in their field. You see, these big corporations that can afford an army of lawyers, of accountants, compliance specialists, and lobbyists are the same ones who are going to make sure that those same regulations inure to their benefit. Because uh, upstarts, uh, uh, new startups can't afford all of those things, and so they're going to get squashed. So anytime somebody makes that argument that there's too much economic freedom and that's why we need more government uh, uh, intrusion in, into the marketplace, the opposite is true. Thanks for that question, Jim, and thanks for the, the answer, Senator. All right, uh, where's our microphone? There, young lady, there we go. Tori, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Senator, for being here. It's always a pleasure to have you here at the Heritage Foundation. It's probably feeling like coming home to you as it does to many of us. Um, so my question is, I uh, was glad to hear about your uh, position in the Joint Economic Committee. Um, it's about as close as we can get you at this point to being on finance, uh, which is where we'd love to have some um, more senators like you. But I'd love to hear more about the work the Joint Economic Committee is doing to advance the same things that the Index of Economic Freedom is advocating for. One of the great things about the Joint Economic Committee is that because it, it's designed essentially as an internal think tank within Washington, it's the, the closest thing we have to a, a mini Heritage Foundation within Congress. In fact, it existed, uh, the, the Joint Economic Committee was created before um, most of our think tanks today existed, and that was its purpose. And so it gives us an opportunity to address in a bipartisan and bicameral fashion a lot of these issues in a, in a legislative forum, but one that doesn't have the burdens of conducting um, markups and, and things of that nature. Because it, it lacks a formal legislative agenda, we're able to promote the ideas and we're able to have hearings that bring these topics to light. We've got some great experts. Very often, some of our best witnesses have come over from the Heritage Foundation and help explain these principles to people. And that's been a, a true highlight of mine. By the way, the Finance, finance Committee, uh, it's an interesting thought. It, it, it ran, um, sort of gave me the chills when you suggested I get on Finance Committee for one simple reason. My, my brother teaches a, a class at Harvard Law School on statutory construction. Uh, ironically, well, 
coming as a, as a guest speaker to his class one day when I learned something about what my colleagues on the Finance Committee actually do. Uh, they, 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 they told me that in the Finance Committee, they vote on quote-unquote notional amendments. In other words, they vote on amendments without text in front of them. Uh, sorry, that is a bad deterior, uh, a deviation from the, the question you asked, but, but I thought that was an important point here. Any legislative body that's actually voting on legislation without text in front of them um, ought to be concerned about what they're doing. So I don't know whether that should be a reason why I should try in a future Congress to get on that committee uh, or stay away from it. I'm not sure. <laughs> Thanks for that. Thanks for the question. Next question, uh, gentleman in the back. <clears throat> David Burton with the Heritage Foundation. One of the most important things that the government does, which they never brag about, is a massive wealth transfer from young people to old people, and particularly less affluent young people to more affluent old people. Medicare does that, Social Security does that, the uh, insurance rate bans in Obamacare does that, of course the national debt does that, and the systematic suppression of economic opportunity for young people through the administrative state does that. And yet, over, uh, a disproportionate number of young people vote for the progressive agenda that would make it worse. And I was wondering if you had thoughts on how to better communicate the fact that the progressive state is basically an enemy of young people to young people so that they change their uh, approach to politics. Vouchers. Vouchers. Vouchers in public education. And, and I, I think we, I would love to see these in every state. K through 12 public education is almost entirely a feature, a, a, a creature of um, state and local government and, and not federal. But even within the federal system, I've, I've been pushing for reforms that within the narrow sphere that we occupy, we ought to, in many instances, uh, make those funds available um, under the ESSA, for example, directly to parents uh, where they can be voucherized and used at the institution of their preference. It may seem like an odd connection of how, how we do that, but I think the biggest single reason why young people are overwhelmingly, well, are, are disproportionately leaning in that direction, even though many of these policies operate to their detriment in the relatively near term is that I don't think they're, many of them are not getting the full picture on what markets are and why they're important and why it should matter to them. Um, I'd be curious to, to pull this audience, for example, and, and figure out whether they were taught as I was taught, and I, I, I went to good public schools, but I was taught that, uh, you know, the Great Depression was brought to an end as a result of New Deal action. There was, of course, another side to that argument, and it's a side that was pioneered and developed very well by Amity Schles in her landmark book, The Forgotten Man. She argues in that book that, in fact, the Great Depression was deepened and significantly prolonged as a result of the same New Deal programs. And, you know, you don't, I, I'm not suggesting that we 
we even have to find a way to change the entire education establishment in the United States so that everyone who teaches uh, is a conservative. I don't think we need that. But we do need both sides to the equation. Too many of our students, myself included, have only been given one side of the argument. Anything else they learn, they have to learn either from, from their parents or through their own independent research. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're, we're losing them. But in a, absent our ability to uh, change the education system through things like vouchers, I also think uh, it's where the work of, of the Heritage Foundation can be so helpful. You've, you've figured out innovative ways over the years, and you're still developing them in, in ways that get better all the time, of communicating to the American people information in a way that's interesting, appealing, and relevant to them. And I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that exchange, gentlemen. Next question. <clears throat> uh, Senator, my name is Drew Bond. I'm uh, president of C3 Solutions. Uh, and uh, Kevin, thank you for hosting this. And I just want to thank the Heritage Foundation for your years of support for this product. I'm a big fan of it. Um, uh, I guess my question is related to, you sit on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. You come from a state that obviously cares a lot about its environment. How do you view the kind of connection between economic freedom and the need for energy, energy security, and also caring for the environment? I don't, I don't view the two as things that are necessarily in conflict. Quite to the contrary, in this country, we produce energy and we utilize energy in a manner that is as respectful and protective of the environment as, as any other country that I'm aware of. Whether you're comparing us to other comparably economically developed countries or to far less developed countries, we do those things better. We do them more efficiently. And um, it's undeniable the impact that um, energy production and access to reliable, affordable, accessible forms of, of energy, uh, it's, not only, it's not just inextricably intertwined with economic growth, but it's, it's almost a condition precedent of that. And by the same token, when you remove the accessibility, affordability, and reliability of, of um, sources of energy, it ends up cascading. It ends up being full to the higher prices of energy. Let's say gasoline, for instance. Every time um, the price of gasoline goes up, or natural gas, for that matter, you see those things not only affecting the individual consumer through their purchase of gasoline and natural gas, but you also see it folded into everything else. And so I, I, it's one of the things that frustrates me about those who are attacking fossil fuel consumption. Look, we need liquid fuels. We, we, can't, we can't operate, we can't do what we do without access to gasoline and diesel and natural gas and and, and, and other fossil fuels as well. We, we can't do that. But the good news is we produce it and we consume it in a manner that's far more environmentally friendly than almost all other nations can. 
And if we shut down our own access to those energy sources here in this country, or if we disincentivize their use and their production, what's going to happen is that we're going to become less significant actors on the global market. I mean, look at how much of our gasoline today comes in one way or another from Russia. Imagine what it would be like if, uh, if they were buying a comparable amount of their energy from us, or at least the rest of Europe was. Not only would the world be a safer place, not only would we not be dealing with a humanitarian uh, a military disaster in Ukraine, but the environment would also be better off as a result. We do it in a more environmentally responsible manner than Russia does, or anyone else for that matter. Thanks for that question, Drew. Let's have time for one more question. There's one out there, right there in the back, someone also very connected to the index. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Terry Miller, with a visiting fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Both uh, you, Senator, and Dr. Roberts have talked a lot about the excessive government spending right. and uh, long-term debt that's causing uh, inflation and so many other problems in our economy and literally devouring the wealth of the American people, not only ourselves, but our children. Uh, the index talks a lot about this as a problem as well, and it certainly is um, responsible in large part for the decline in the U.S. ranking in the index. But for over two decades now, um, doesn't matter what political party is in power, um, we have deficit spending in the United States from the United States government. Is there, uh, and can you talk about, a, a legitimate path by which the American people could hope that our political leadership would address this issue in a positive way? I don't think there's a more vexing or a more important question than the one you just asked. In, in anything and everything connected to, to the federal government, I think that is, um, that is one that stands perhaps alone in, in its level of importance. In every civilization that we know anything about, when governments do this, they eventually create their own economic collapse. It's never pleasant, and it's usually least pleasant for those who can least afford to absorb the costs. As to your, the, your, your, specific, your question deals specifically with how and when we might get to the point when elected officials serving in Congress and at the White House will actually meaningfully address it. The short answer to your question is, I don't know exactly, it'll be 12 chronological units <laughs> before we get to that point. But I do know the circumstances that will get us there. And they have a lot to do with what happens when this comes to its natural culmination point. And I think we're really close to that point. And, and it's, it's not a pleasant thing to think about. Um, if I've got just a couple minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it. You have 12 chronological units. 12 chronological, okay, wonderful. Well, Thank maybe you. two, Senator. Thank two. you. Uh, two in my case. <laughs> 
Last year we spent on our national debt, what was it, uh, I, I think it was around $400 billion uh, on interest on our national debt. Um, it's a lot of money. There are people in Utah who do not make $400 billion on an entire year. <clears throat> but that's money that we, we have to, to, to pay to our creditors. Creditors, That's the interest that, that accrues. So we have to pay it. The scary part about that is not the hugeness of that number. The scary part of that is the smallness of that number, the fact that it was only that amount, and that it's not, it's not that different than our interest payment 20 or 25 years ago when our national debt was, what, maybe an eighth or a ninth of its current size? The only reason our, our annual interest payment is that low is because the Treasury yield rates, the interest rate at which we have to pay our, our creditors, those who buy U.S. Treasuries, is at an all-time historic low. We've achieved this through some, we'll call them transitory uh, conditions. We're the least bad bet in town for now. Uh, U.S. Treasuries are still the least bad bet of, of their kind. Um, and because of the, the fact that the U.S. dollar has this coveted status as being the world's reserve currency, uh, and because of the way the Federal Reserve Bank has been able to buy up ostensibly on the secondary market all these treasuries, continuing to develop demand for them, and has been able to encourage others to hold a lot of U.S. treasuries, a lot of other financial institutions to hold them. At some point, though, that party comes to an end. I don't know when it is, but at some point it does. Because at some point, the, US, the market for U.S. treasuries starts to have wandering eyes. It starts to look elsewhere. What scares me to death is that while we don't know when that will come, that moment could come at any time. Even if the U.S. dollar lose, doesn't lose its status as the world's reserve currency, all that has to happen is for those who buy U.S. treasuries to start saying, okay, we don't want to buy more of those this week. The, the yield is too low. And when the Treasury Department holds its auctions, uh, they don't buy them, so they have to increase the yield slightly. The minute that starts happening, in this environment, they're so low, arguably for some time, they've been uh, at or below zero in terms of their true yield factoring in inflation. More recently, considerably below. When that happens, I fear that the Treasury yield rates will increase rather precipitously. Now, what happens if we, now that we've reached this awful milestone of, of $30 trillion in debt. We go back just to our historic average uh, yield rate. We will, in a pretty short period of time, go from spending, I don't know, something in the range of about $400 billion a year in interest to likely as some around, actually now be in excess of a trillion dollars a year. Just that delta between what we're paying now and what we could be paying then could rival and at some point eclipse what we spend in an entire year on defense. That's scary. But that day is coming. 
And when it does come, the consequences are going to be dire because you can't just tax your way out of that. You know, even if you suddenly increased the tax rate, the top, the marginal tax rate on income earned above a million dollars a year to a 100% confiscatory level, you wouldn't even come close to covering that void, covering that hole. And in the process, you, you would quickly depress economic growth to the point that it would actually bring in less revenue the next year than, than it did in that year. Any outcome there is a negative one, and any outcome there is going to produce unpleasantness, and I, I fear that we're going to be forced into obedience to the laws of economics and mathematics. I would love it if we could get, if we could do it voluntarily rather than by force of those operations. The one way that it could happen without those is if people apprehended the possibility of that outcome. And if they did, they would vote differently. And if they did, they would stop uh, uh, electing people to Congress who were so concerned about being praised by the headlines in the compliant progressive media that they would stop voting for bills that spend too much money and stop voting for appropriations measures they hadn't read and that produce uh, uh, massive deficits that we know we can't handle. Sorry, but that was at least three chronological units. Well, I, I, I see now why you like the filibuster so much. <laughs> uh, just joking, my friend, just joking. Uh, excellent answer, all kidding aside. Really grateful for that. I'll just add an addendum just so you don't feel too guilty about taking some time that if, in fact, what you said at the very end is correct, that a majority of Americans come to their senses and elect more people who understand the fiscal cliff we're, we're, we're sort of standing at, Heritage has a roadmap. It's called the Budget Blueprint, and it is out in the last days. It's led by our friend Matt Dickerson. There'll be more about that soon. And it does wonderful things or calls for wonderful things like just eliminating the U.S. Department of Education, an agency that is not near and dear to this educator's heart. Well, Senator Mike Lee, our audience, thank you all for being here. Thank you, sir, for your courage, for your leadership, and your good cheer. God bless you. Thank you.